right, thanks guys. Well, good morning to you, all right? Welcome to Citadel Square. If you're new, my name is Steve, one of the pastors here. Uh, if you got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it and turn to Luke chapter 9. Uh, if you've been with us through the course of this series, and really through the course of kind of from Luke chapter 4 up into about Luke chapter 9, you know this is the last message in our previous study guide, right? You got your study guide still? Hold it up if you got it. You still got it? Look at all these people study. Isn't that good? Man, I'm glad that, that's, uh, that you're still using those. Um, so let me kind of, well, before you turn, before we get into the word, let me just give you a couple things on that. Uh, we'll finish that study guide today. Uh, and what we find here in this passage here today is a major break in the book of Luke. It's the final two little bitty stories in four verses that um, are kind of a hinge in the book of Luke. Uh, because at this point, what Jesus is going to do is uh, shift his ministry from the northern part of Israel in the land of Galilee. And he's going to set his face to go to Jerusalem. So everything that follows from Luke chapter, kind of end of Luke chapter 9 forward, is going to be Jesus on his way to his eventual suffering, crucifixion, death, and resurrection. So that's how the book lays out. So from about 951 really up to chapter 19 will be our next big block. But you're not going to get that study guide next week because what we're going to do is take a break in Luke and kind of set our hearts as we head toward Christmas. It's October. We're about seven or eight weeks till Christmas. Isn't that depressing? Right? You haven't even thought. All you've been doing is drinking pumpkin spice, you know, and you've forgotten that Christmas is indeed coming. But uh, I got an advanced copy of what we're going to spend seven weeks in here headed toward, uh, headed toward Christmas. We're going to spend some time in the book of Malachi. So next week, uh, come on back, tell your friends and neighbors, you can get your very own Malachi study guide. That's going to take us up and through uh, the Christmas season. And Malachi is the last word in the Old Testament. Uh, it's a book filled with, uh, you'll see when you get the study guide, apathy, arguments, and anticipation. It's a book that looks forward. It's God's final word. If you remember when we started Luke back in like 89, it's Luke's final, uh, Malachi's final word before 400 years of silence. So it builds in your Bible to the point to where there's a promise that is going to be fulfilled by the coming of John the Baptist and the Christ as the New Testament opens. So we're going to spend time meditating on anticipation, uh, meditating on the Christmas season as we look forward to all that God wants to teach us in the book of Malachi. So that's coming next week. Malachi will take us up into Christmas. We'll have a couple messages in there, but we'll come back to Luke starting in Luke chapter 9 in the new year. All right? So just to let you know, that's what's coming. I'll give you an eye and an awareness of where we're going to be here in the coming weeks. All right. Uh, go ahead. Grab your Bibles. <clears throat> Turn with me to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. As we come to the end on this uh, mini-series on discipleship, we've watched Jesus uh, train these apostles. If you just open your Bible to Luke chapter 9 and take a kind of a scan of the whole chapter with me, you've seen a variety of experiences that uh, these men have had with Jesus. They were initially commissioned into a ministry that was beyond what they could imagine, into the greatest ministry opportunity of their entire lives. Uh, and they were invited not only into personal discipleship with Jesus, but they were invited into participating in the very ministry that Jesus was doing by casting out demons and driving away disease. 
uh, and they return and they come back and we've had really this rising tension in the idea of discipleship about how these disciples have understood Jesus. Jesus has confronted them with the primacy of his identity that they in their discipleship might understand who he is and that's been a real challenge throughout the course of Luke chapter 9. We've seen them confronted with their inability and their failure to do the very thing that Christ calls them to do. And all the way through this process of discipleship, of understanding Jesus and who he is, understanding his identity in new ways, they've been confronted with their own need to die. Right? They, they've had this experience with Jesus where there's been massive success, but they've been confronted with the fact that not only is Jesus going to suffer and die, but Jesus calls them to take up their cross and to follow him. And that's been a tension in this story, hasn't it? That it feels like every single week we've faced a situation that causes the disciples some kind of consternation, some kind of conflict where they're unable to do the things that Jesus is calling them to do. And you can't really call Luke chapter 9 the 12 terrible disciples because that doesn't really roll off the tongue, right? I like training better because they're constantly in training. They're constantly being confronted with this need to depend on Jesus to do things that they cannot do. This need to look to Jesus and to listen to Jesus and to focus on the things that he is saying at the expense of their own perspective. They're faced with challenges that are beyond their abilities virtually all the way through Luke chapter 9. Even up to last week when we faced their, this challenge where there's this demon oppressed boy that again they're faced not only in the need for dependence as they feed the 5,000, but also the need for prayer and dependence on Christ in the valley when they face the darkness of a boy who's inhabited by a demon. And all along the way, we've been confronted with challenges to our discipleship. I hope, I hope you've seen that as well, but we all carry challenges to our own personal spiritual progress, don't we? We all face challenges, whether it's in our family or our understanding of situations in life or our relative maturity at the time that brings us very quickly in our spiritual lives to the end of ourselves, where we don't know how to handle life as it comes with us. We don't know how to handle life as a Christian, as a believer in the body when Christ is not visible. And the good news all the way through Luke chapter 9 is that Christ has handled the conflicts, hasn't he? That we've seen Christ be more than sufficient and more than able for the challenges that these disciples are going to face. So before we leave Luke chapter 9, we have one more challenge that the disciples have to face. Because up to this point, the challenges that the disciples have faced have primarily been outside of their community. As they've walked with Jesus, they've been developing their perspective on Christ and who he is, but Christ has brought them into conflict with things that are happening on the outside. The crowds, the demon-possessed boy, the opinions of men and those that they minister to. But this one as you get to the end of Luke chapter 9, has to do not with things that are happening on the outside, but things that are happening on the inside of the community. There are problems and struggles that this band of disciples are going to face that have nothing to do with those out there, but have everything to do with those in here. So this is a message for those who are insiders. This is a message and a teaching for those who lay claim and say, I follow Jesus. And what you're going to have here in this passage is a, 
a confrontation really with how we're going to apply our discipleship in the church. How we're going to apply discipleship with one another. How are we going to journey with Christ as a community of faith who believes that Jesus is who he says he is? What should our relationships look like in the body? And you're going to have that confronted by Jesus. Now, Jesus has a lot more to teach the disciples on his way to Jerusalem, so this isn't the end of the disciples' uh, growth and spiritual progress. We'll see more as Luke goes on. But this is perhaps one of the most dangerous challenges a group of believers are going to face. Of what you, demons, are demons any problem for God? No, are physical diseases any problem for Jesus? But the disciples are going to have a problem here that Jesus is going to have to address. That he's going to have to get to the bottom of because otherwise, if he doesn't, it will create a massively dysfunctional spiritual group of leaders. All right? So let's pray and we'll ask God for his grace as we jump in here. Father, for these few minutes, as we look into your word and... We plead for understanding for those of us who will feel the tension of a passage like this. I know it will rest on all of us a little bit differently. But Father, we pray for clarity that your spirit would convict of sin, that your spirit would point us to Christ, that your spirit would shape our perspective in ways that perhaps we haven't considered before, that you would make us men and women who receive the truth that you have to teach us here in humility and in confidence of your great goodness toward us in the person of Jesus Christ. So, Father, bless us in that ambition. Would you uh, capture our attention and our affections here this morning that we might present to you hearts of wisdom, responding to the truth that we've seen in Luke chapter 9 that comes from heaven that calls us to listen to Christ. And we pray that we might do that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 9. We're going to be in, in verses 46 through about verse 50 with me. Y'all there? One. Y'all there? Okay, that's okay. Let's go. I won't, I won't do that. Um, you remember how we ended last week. Uh, the disciples, if you're reading through Luke chapter 9, the disciples really faced a, a, um, a difficult thing that Jesus shared with them. That as he healed the boy with the demon, everybody is applauding, everybody is marveling, everyone's astonished at what Jesus is doing, but Jesus pulls the disciples close and it's as if Jesus whispers under the roar of the applause and says, let these words sink into your ears. And he tells them, the son of man is going to be handed into the hands of men. Excuse me, into the hands of men. And you see there at the end in verse 46, they didn't understand this saying and it was concealed from them that they might not perceive it and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Now, Luke leaves out a little bit of travel that happens between these two verses. As Jesus heals this boy in the valley, he heads back to Capernaum, which is really his, his center of operations in the, in the city of Galilee or the region of Galilee. And the disciples on the way are having a conversation. Uh, the conversation that Luke is going to record here happens in Capernaum and it happens in a house. And what Jesus does is invite, um, he basically asks the disciples a question. And he asks them, hey, what were you talking about on the road? Because as they leave this encounter with the demon-oppressed boy, the disciples are synthesizing and trying to understand all that Jesus has been telling them. But the interesting thing about Luke as he starts this passage is that we left last week talking about the, the disciples' difficulty in understanding what Jesus has been saying, right? 
Jesus has continued to tell them, I'm going to suffer and die. I'm going to suffer and die. I'm going to take up my cross. You got to take up your cross. I'm going to suffer and die. I'm going to suffer and die. And the disciples, just, you know, 10 days into their discipleship, have not been able to put that together. But this passage shows us that one of the reasons that it's, uh, that it's difficult for us to understand sometimes the things that Jesus is saying is because we have a tendency and we have an underlying commitment, a predetermined commitment to our own glory. We all wrestle with making us the central character in life. Do you do that? You and I, I do this too. I believe the most important thing in my life is me. I believe I'm the central character. I believe if there was a movie made about me, I would be the central character in that movie. And what Jesus has been doing with these disciples is changing their perspective on um, popularity, on applause, on the glory that has been given to them by men. And Jesus has been saying, what is about to happen is I'm going to be the villain in this story. Nobody is going to like me. I'm going to experience crucifixion. And he's been inviting the disciples into that reality so that in their context, what Luke does is confront us with the fact that these disciples are wrestling with perhaps the most significant thing that any person in this room at any time is going to wrestle with, and that's with making you the primary lead actor in your story. That's how this passage starts because the conversation that happens on the way with the disciples shows up in verse 46. An argument arose. Literally, an argument entered in. Now, Luke gives us a word here that Jesus will use in just a second, but it's a word that we get the term dialogue from. And it's simply a, simply a conversation, but Luke translates it here as argument. And argument's a pretty good translation of that term because of what you see in the remainder of the verse. An argument arose among them as to which one of them was the greatest. What makes a conversation into an argument? It's competing values, isn't it? We can talk about who won the baseball game. We can talk about things that are happening in our day and time. We can talk about the weather. But arguments show up when there's a worldview conflict, right? When there's a conflict over the, the uh, misalignment of shared values. So now, as they're leaving this moment where they couldn't cast out a demon in this boy, they're on the way and somebody brings up the fact that we need to have a conversation. And what we should be talking about on our way back to Jerusalem while we're indeed following Jesus and he's in our group is, who's the greatest? Now you laugh at that, and I laugh at that because it's funny. It's supposed to be funny. You're supposed to read that and kind of roll your eyes as you've been reading through the book of Luke. Because this, if, if anything that we've learned in Luke chapter 9, this is the absolute worst application to everything we've learned in Luke chapter 9. Right? By the time you get to the end of Luke chapter 9 where Jesus is, is glorified on the mountain, where Jesus is talking about his coming crucifixion, for somebody to ask, hey, who's the best? It's just off-brand. It makes no sense. So let me make just a couple of observations about this, kind of this verse as we get into this. Um, you know, are the, have you been reading Luke and thought to yourself, these disciples are impressive. 
I mean, Jesus is pretty good, but have you seen John, Peter, Bartholomew? Nobody has said that, right? Nobody's been reading Luke and gone like, man, Jesus is pretty good, but there's some other guys up there just like Jesus. Well, no, we as the readers of Luke have gone like, well, Peter, the professional fisherman, couldn't catch fish. He's not that, really that impressive. They fell asleep on the Mount of Transfiguration while praying, 0 for 2. Uh, They were totally unable to cast out the demon last week because they didn't trust in Jesus, the things that he's saying, or even pray. So nothing about this story up to this point would make any of us as the readers of Luke 2,000 years later think, this is a worthwhile discussion. We should think about who is the greatest. So Luke has it here really for a way to make you smile a little bit and go, this is not going to go well. This conversation is not headed in a healthy direction. In fact, this conversation is turning into an argument because all the disciples have a, are thinking about themselves. They're focused upon themselves. Now, because that's a fact when we read the book of Luke, one of the things it tells you is that right from the beginning, any conversation that includes pride is profoundly blinding. Any conversation that has anything to do with spiritual or uh, selfish ambition and a desire to make much of myself and who I am profoundly closes my eyes to the reality of what is going on around me. Amen? Nothing about this story makes us think that the disciples have their ears tuned into what Jesus is saying and their eyes open to what Jesus is trying to tell them. In fact, they have a preconceived notion that their glory is of highest importance. Their position in the body is of highest importance. They need to be giving their time to something other than this conversation. Number two, this conversation doesn't happen in the context of comparing themselves to outsiders. It happens in context of comparing themselves to one another, right? It's a conversation in the church. It's a conversation among those who serve Jesus, So it tells you that when selfish ambition and pride are alive, that they're really hard to root out even in the presence of those who are committed and have given their businesses and their lives and their time to following Jesus. Even in the presence of Jesus, pride is hard to get rid of. That should concern you. Because this is the kernel out of which the church will be founded. These are the 12 out of which ministry is going to happen. And right at the beginning, the problem that these disciples have, early in their discipleship, is asking who's the most important one of us. Number three, the discussion, you see it, isn't over uh, who is greatest in comparison to Jesus, is it? That would be, I mean, that'd be too easy, right? It'd be too easy to spot that arrogance and that pride in the heart of the disciples. It's way easier to go, who's the greatest among us? And actually the way Luke orients this sentence in the Greek is to let you know that it's not that I'm the best disciple. It's that some of us are better than others of us. Now that's going to be important as we go through these, this string of verses, but the conversation is over. Now, you can, I mean, just put yourself in the, in the mind of the disciples. We just had three of us go up on the mountain, see Jesus transfigured in his glory, talking to Moses and Elijah. Nine of us were down here talking to a demon that we couldn't cast out with the boy. The father is yelling. The crowds are yelling. We're arguing with the scribes. And then we're leaving this scene. And now this conversation comes up. Pete, 
James, John, where were you? Up on the mountain, enjoying the glory. What were you down? Being a terrible disciple, unable to cast out the demons. What was wrong with you guys? Now, can I mean, how easy is it to, to, to put yourself in this situation, right? This is an easy temptation to fall into. So, Nobody is comparing themselves to Jesus. They're all comparing themselves to one another, which lets you know that typically pride works in the context. Pride very rarely shows up when it's just you and Jesus because Jesus is so great and you're not. That's easy. Pride shows up when other people are involved because pride shows up now when I go, they don't love Jesus like I love Jesus. They don't pray like I pray. They don't serve like I serve. Jesus, pay attention over here. Will you, can you see this? Aren't you glad that I'm on your team, Jesus, and they just barely made the cut? I'm on the starting five. They sit the bench. That's okay, we're all on the team, but they're not the starting five. So what's Jesus going to do? How's Jesus going to get to this root issue that is alive and well in this new group of people that he handpicked? Wouldn't you start over? Uh, that's not my... Let's do this again. I'm going to go pray all night and pick a new 12. Look at verse 47. But Jesus. Isn't that a great way to start that verse? We're all talking about who's important, who's great, who's important, who's top of the heap, who's better, who's worse. But Jesus. Now Luke gives us the same word. Look, watch this. This is incredible. Jesus knowing the reasoning of their hearts. Now look back at 46. If you want to circle the word argument, it's the same word in verse 47 that is the word reasoning. Only where is Jesus looking? Is Jesus listening to the conversation? Probably. But what's interesting, and over in Matthew, Jesus asks, he allows this conversation to go on. On their way back from wherever they were at the valley to all the way back to Capernaum, all the way into the house where he's staying. And he asks them, like Jesus does, what were you talking about on the way, boys? And here's this argument that Luke has presented before us. And here's what Jesus says. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts. Now, it's really hard uh, for us to discern when people are proud, right? Proverbs says that the words of a man, man's mouth are like deep waters, which means they're hard to understand. It's hard for us to understand intent and motive, right? It's not hard for Jesus. Isn't that good news? Jesus cuts right to the, he cuts right to the heart of what's going on. He knows the reasoning, not of their conversation. He knows the reasonings of their hearts. He knows that what is going on in the heart is the core of this issue. Because Jesus tells us over in Matthew, he says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So are you surprised that the disciples are in an argument? No, Jesus isn't surprised because he knows that the source of that argument isn't the argument. It's not the conversation. It's not the ranking, the relative ranking of where you are as a disciple. He knows the problem that's going on in the lives and hearts of these men lives at the level of their hearts. Now, let's see how Jesus is going to handle the argument. Do you rebuke them? Do you hit them with fire? You let the demons have them? I don't know. What do you do? What's the options here for handling pride in the heart of the disciples? Now, pride is primarily a perspective problem, right? We have a tendency in pride to evaluate. We're always making evaluations. This happens on any kid's uh, sports team. 
This happens in any stage in life where if you were ever picked last, you know where you stand in the community, right? This is characteristic of virtually every uh, social situation, every workplace situation, every time that you came up in school. Every single kid wants to know where they rank. They all do that. I did that. I was as good as, as him, I was worse than him. And I was always trying to play and play the kid who was up here so that I could beat him and then feel good about myself, right? So here's what Jesus is going to do. Jesus is going to address this issue in the heart, not with a rebuke, not with a conversation, not with a parable. Jesus is going to do it through a visible illustration to get at the heart of this problem, to show the disciples what's going on. So here's what he does. He knows the reasoning of their hearts. And being so wise, Jesus takes an opportunity to give them a visible illustration. Look at the remainder of the verse. He took a child and put him by his side. Now the word for child is not, um, it's not middle schooler or high schooler. It's think kindergartner. It's little kid. And Jesus, in this home, takes this child and puts this child right next to him. And here are the disciples all standing around griping and complaining about who's the best. And Jesus takes a disciple and put, or takes a little child and puts the little child right next to him. Over in Matthew and Mark, it says even that he takes the child up into his arms. So he's, you know, the child is not heavy enough for Jesus to be able to pick up. You know, your kids get too heavy to pick up. You know that. <clears throat> so they're still little. Here's this little one standing next to Jesus. And Jesus puts him in front of the disciples. Look at verse 48. And this is what he says. Here's how Jesus explains the illustration. He explains the visible child that's in front of these disciples. He's got to, Jesus has to open their eyes, right? He's got to handle pride by helping them to see the way he sees. So this is what he does. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. Now, what Jesus does here, Luke shifts this scene a little bit differently than Matthew and Mark does. In Matthew and Mark, Jesus talks about serving. And the one who is least among you is great because of the point of him serving. But have you ever found out that in your own life that you can serve people for you? That you can do good things... Jesus talks about this in Matthew 6, that your giving, your praying, and your fasting might not be done so that others would see it. Well, we all know that because pride is alive and well in our hearts, that we have a tendency to serve and then to want the praise for it. Right? We want to serve and get recognized. We want to get served and get noticed. We want to serve and make sure people see what great disciples we are. But Luke leaves out the serving part. He's giving you a perspective shift. So in Luke, Luke wants you to see this, that Jesus is attacking pride because of a perspective issue. Now, when he uses this term receive, you see the receive word? It shows up three times in this verse. What Jesus is doing is, is tapping into kind of how social conventions work in Jesus' day. Honor and affirmation are a big, big deal in this culture. If you remember Jesus uh, restoring the sinful woman from the city, that Jesus is invited to a conversation with a Pharisee, with a scribe, with a religious leader, and the religious leader invites all of his friends into the, into the conversation, into the meal. But this woman shows up, a woman from the city whose reputation everybody knows, and she disrupts the social conventions of the day because she's not an honorable individual. 
She's not an important individual. So what you would do in this time is you would always eat with people of either equal or greater honor. Because that would confer honor to you. It's a consistent honor-shame reality culture. So Jesus puts this child in front of the disciples and talks about receiving this child. Now when Jesus uses the term for child, you need to know where children ranked in this culture too. Children ranked the lowest of the low, lower than even servants who washed feet. In some of the religious writings of the day, it was said to wake up late and be lazy, to spend time drinking too much wine, and to spend time with chattering children will destroy a man. So that's how in unvaluable children would be perceived in this culture. They could give you no honor. They could give you no reputation. You would get no honor by spending time with children because they weren't viewed as valuable. But Jesus decides to take this ambition for greatness that's alive and well in the hearts of the disciples and diffuse it by introducing them a, to them a category of person who has no value in the culture, who has no social standing, and who can confer no honor whatsoever by their reception of the individual. So Jesus takes the social strata of the day and flips it on its head. He takes the worthless, he takes the sinful woman and affirms, forgives, and restores her life in the presence of all of the people who would think she has no social standing and no honor whatsoever. But in Jesus' mind, she's a woman of great value and great worth. When the child stands next to Christ, Jesus takes the child and says, if you, look at what he says, if you receive this child in my name, you receive me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. That is, if you receive this child in my name because of who you understand I am, you actually receive me. You actually receive the one who sent me. So what are the disciples arguing about? The disciples are arguing about how they rank. Whether we're greater and you're lesser. I'm greater than you, you're greater than him, he's greater than It's not a which disciple is the best, it's the natural world in which we're constantly tempted to evaluate ourselves based on other people. We constantly do this. We all do this. I do this as a pastor. Am I a better pastor than another pastor? Am I more effective in what I'm doing than someone else and what they're doing? I constantly make the gospel message and the gospel story that we're committed to teach and disciple and train about me. I'm always tempted to evaluate how I'm doing based upon my relative, my relative achievements and accomplishments based against other people. And Jesus takes the social strategy. You live this at work, don't you? You live in this world, right? That when you leave this place, you are fighting for reputation. You are fighting for recognition. You are fighting to be the top of your field in what you do. And Jesus takes the social standing and he turns it on his head. Which means when Jesus is teaching discipleship, he says it's less about where you rank and more about who you're willing to receive. Now, why does that matter? 
We have a tendency to evaluate our own personal discipleship based on the relative spiritual victories of our day. How much Bible we know, how faithful we are, what marks of obedience we're, we're attempting and accomplishing. And our assessment of ourselves rises or falls typically based on law, right? We typically have a set of values that we seek to live out and we determine whether or not and how we're doing based upon our own internal code, family upbringing, experiences, uh, spiritual community we're in and the, whatever that community values. But Jesus says it's not about where you rank, it's who you receive. It's who you're willing to open your arms to. It's who you're willing to receive with open and authentic welcome, especially those who can give you no honor, especially those who in the world's eyes are considered of no value, of no importance. For Jesus to use this illustration is to show us that discipleship really is about turning and valuing the people that Jesus values. Do you see that? Right? We can warp discipleship into this ambition for our own personal glory and, and maturity and achievement. But Jesus makes discipleship profoundly relational. Quit ranking yourself, disciples. How much time are you spending valuing the people that the culture gives no attention to? How much time are you giving to serving those who can contribute nothing back to you? As if you think this is just a problem here, this continues in the church. Keep your finger in Luke 9 and turn over with me to James. Keep going to the right, find James right after Hebrews, and look at James chapter 2. James chapter 2 verse 1 says this, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly... And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. You see it? Where is this happening? It's happening at church. It's happening among the people of God. A poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil? You know what that word for thoughts is? It's the same word in Luke chapter 9 for arguments and reasonings. So does this live in the church? It absolutely does. James has to address it. Jesus has to address it in the very first community of spiritual leaders that he's handpicked. You think this is alive and well in church 2,000 years later? Say yeah. Oh yeah, you know this. If you've been to other churches, you've been to other experiences, you've had relationships with uh, other Christians, you have felt the subtext of, aren't we great? I know you're, I mean, I know you're here and we're glad you're here, but aren't we great? Isn't that alive and well, amen? Go back to Luke 9. So as we receive those with no social standing, what we do is we affirm their value. We say that we value them the way Jesus values them. We don't use our serving in the church of the weak and the unpopular and the lower, um, the, the, those with low value in the eyes of the culture to pad our own spiritual reputation. We serve them because of who Christ calls them to be, of who Christ says they are.
We all know this. You know how I like to serve? You probably do too. I like serving people who agree with me. I like serving people who like me. I like serving people who appreciate the fact that I am serving them. That's who I like serving. Don't you like serving those folks? Makes you feel good about serving. You ever try to... So it's interesting to me that Jesus uses a child in this illustration. Do you ever try to tell a child how great you are? Have you found out that children don't care? Do you know when children pay attention? When you get down on your knees and you ask them, tell me about this calico critter. Tell me what you built with these Legos. Tell me what you're playing and how I can be a part of this stuffed animal hospital. <laughs> right? When do children, you come into a conversation with children, you're going, well, I've got a couple of degrees. I know some Greek and some Hebrew. It's pretty impressive. I, mean, I teach the Bible and aren't you glad that I'm here? You'll bore them in about 15 seconds. But when you come down onto the level of children, you are invited into their world. You're invited into what's important to them. And by doing that, what you're doing is conferring value on the fact of who they are. I had a seminary professor who said, like, children, when they tell stories, don't tell ch stories with any point. They just tell stories to talk. And I will tell you, after having six children, that is true. <laughs> I don't know where this story is going. I'm not sure who's involved. I don't know who the characters are. But man, she has my attention. It's the best thing in the world that she has my attention. She'll keep it going for, I mean, 20 minutes of run-on sentences because she has my attention. What's Jesus saying? If you receive them, you receive me. Now look at what he says. For, here's how he explains it. He who is least among you all is the one who is great. Now Jesus, don't you hate it when Jesus uses the words that are you know, concerning to you against you? You go, what, who's the greatest? He goes, Jesus says, I'll tell you who the greatest is. It's the least. What is Jesus saying? Jesus saying Christianity and discipleship isn't a competition for who's the most important. Because compared to Jesus, nobody's that great. But at the very same time, Jesus says they're great. Do you see what he just did? Jesus said there are no people who have zero value in this community. I'll say it another way. Every single person in this community is of infinitesimal value because I say they are. Because greatness can't be found by comparison to other people. Greatness can only be found by personal relationship with Jesus. To be known and loved by Christ makes you great. Do you know that? Have you experienced the freedom of being known and called great in Jesus' eyes because of nothing that you've done, but everything that he's done. This is the way to ruin pride, is to go, who compares to Jesus? Nobody, but he loves me, and he calls me into relationship with himself, and he makes me equal to every single other person. That's why there is no slave, no free, no Greek, no Jew, no male, no female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. We are all equal. And in Christ's eyes, the littlest to the greatest in the world's eyes don't matter. The littlest is great. 
So for this group of men, their discipleship has to take on the same valuing of the lowest and the least as Jesus's does. The thing that is consistent throughout Luke's gospel is that Jesus seeks out the unimpressive. Jesus seeks out the lowest in the society. Jesus seeks out the people who are struggling and he gives them great dignity and great worth by being identified and known by him. So is this a problem that needs to get remedied in a group of believers? Can you imagine, just imagine for a second, what our church would be like where there was this level of value placed upon people who come in to this community and would receive the respect and love and deference and preciousness and value of a people who go, we love Jesus here, therefore you are of great value. Can you imagine the kind of church that would be? It would almost be like Philippians chapter 2 where Paul says, consider, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. For Jesus to affirm that the weakest of us is great, for Jesus to affirm that those of no social standing are great in his eyes is the profound leveler in a community. It frees us from comparison. It frees us from pride. You want to get pride out of your life? Begin to open your arms to people who don't think like you, act like you, or really have anything to contribute to you. Because then you will start to understand what Jesus' goal is in discipleship. See, Jesus' goal in discipleship, don't miss this, is not really about great understanding. That's a challenge in Luke chapter 9, but Jesus' goal in discipleship is profoundly relational, isn't it? It's who you're willing to open your arms to, who you're willing to welcome, who you're willing to say, you matter to Jesus, therefore you matter to me. It's to incarnate and take on the perspective that Jesus has on the least of these. Now, that's number one. We got a few minutes left and we got two verses. How do you think I'm going to do? I'm glad that you have such faith in me. So, there's your tendency to pride within the community. Is the lesson over yet? It's not because John has a question. John raises his hand and John, in in being a good thinking disciple, recognizes that I had an experience that doesn't seem to line up with these values that Jesus is putting in front of us. Something happened. Jesus, we did something that doesn't seem to line up with what you're talking to us about receiving and valuing those who are least. So on one hand, we got a problem in the community that Jesus has to address. But we also have a problem here that John brings up for us in verse 49. 49, John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. Now that in your name, you should connect back up to the previous paragraph because these two stories are connected by that phrase. If you receive this one in my name, you receive me. And John says, hmm, I saw somebody doing something in your name. This person was casting out demons and we tried to stop him. Now if you thought it was funny that this passage started the way it did, you should be laughing your head off at this point. Do you know why? Because the disciples had a really hard time with casting out a demon. Right? 
So here's what John says. We saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because, not because he doesn't follow, he doesn't follow Jesus. We tried to stop him not because he was casting out demons. We tried to stop him because he doesn't follow with who? Us. Jesus, you prayed all night to get us. Jesus, you saw the face of the Father to get us. We're the 12 hand-picked. Jesus spent all night picking us. How you been doing? Well, we can't cast out demons. We don't really believe what he says. We can't really do the things he's called us to. We're really scared when he starts talking about the cross. Yeah, 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 but this guy's casting out demons, Jesus. You see this guy? The implication in the verbs here is that they tried to stop him and they couldn't, which makes it even funnier to me. You know, the disciples are like shouting on the sidelines at this guy who's winning, who's actually serving Jesus in Jesus' name, who's actually has faith in Jesus, who's actually has his weapons pointed in the right direction while all the disciples have their weapons pointed at each other about who's the greatest. This guy's actually out here doing it. This guy actually has faith in Christ. This guy actually has the power that accompanies faith in Jesus' name to cast out demons who are the actual threats to the people who are following Jesus. And John says our solution was to stop him because he doesn't follow us. You might think the disciples will rejoice that the demonic oppression is ceasing. But the disciples here, just as they have a predetermined commitment to their own glory, which causes them to point their weapons at one another and evaluate who's the greatest, express the same kind of, this is why these two sections are connected, they express the same kind of pride by now critiquing those outside of their community who aren't doing it the way they're doing it, which is poorly. So the disciples now live in this place where the expression of their following Jesus really results in critique, not encouragement of others, not affirmation of those who are actually doing the work, but saying, no, you need to stop it because you don't follow with us. You're not on our team. You're not in our camp. You're not a part of the ones who've been handpicked by Jesus. Our ministry methods work. Yours do not. You need to do it like us. I don't care that you're experiencing success over there like that. So what's Jesus going to say? But Jesus said to him, don't stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. It means that in this time, this is all we get of this setting. It seems that there's a person out there who has faith in Christ and is casting out demons in his name and Jesus himself among the group of people who are handpicked who will be the foundation of the church along with the prophets. Jesus says that ministry is bigger than the twelve. Of all people who have the right to say ministry ought to happen like we do it here, Jesus squashes this right at the beginning of the community. Well, what does that mean then? If you, if you ever read the book of Philippians, you recognize right in the Philippians chapter 1 that Paul is in prison. And Paul, as he's in prison, says that there are some out there who are preaching Christ from basically good motivations. And there are others who are preaching Christ from bad motivations, seeking to cause, quote, to cause me trouble in my imprisonment. And Paul's response is not like the disciples. Paul doesn't say, quit it, I'm already in prison, and I don't want it to get any worse. 
Paul's conviction in Philippians chapter 1 is to rejoice that Christ is preached even with evil intentions. He says that the gospel is far more powerful than people who are seeking to, to use the gospel preaching to cause me trouble in prison because Christ is preached and people are receiving it. And Paul can go, amen. I don't care how you preach it. You mad at me and you preach it? That's great. You love me and preach it? That's good too. Why? Because I love Christ being preached. The disciples don't. The disciples don't like that people are doing ministry differently. They don't, disciples don't like that ministry is happening not on their terms, but on this person's terms. The disciples don't like that this person's having success and we're not having success. And this happens all the time in the church. This happens all the time when people go, I'm leaving that church because they're drifting and I'm going to this church and this church has it right. Let me tell you, if you're in this church and you come to this church and you like this church, sooner or later, we're going to disappoint you. Sorry. Because the church is filled with God doing work that is far above and beyond 323 Meeting Street. Wisdom doesn't end with Citadel Square. That if God wants to choose, now let me, let me preface this. There's an exclusivity to the Lord that we serve. The disciples are serving the Lord. The man casting out demons are serving the Lord. Different methods, different places, different ways, but the exclusivity in the person that they serve. That means we can be open-handed, we can be magnanimous, that Jesus himself believes that more ministry is happening than just in the hand-picked 12. Jesus believes that there could be revival happening in other churches around the city. Jesus believes that ministry methodology and doing it our way is not the standard for everyone. That's why we can have fellowship and relationship with other churches. Do you name the name of Christ? You believe that Jesus is the Son of God? You believe that salvation is by faith, by grace alone? Amen, hallelujah, brother. We're on the same team. You do ministry different? You do ministry with Ferris wheels? Do it with Ferris wheels. You do it with boats? Do it with boats. You do it in different ways? Do it that way. You believe in Christ, he's coming back, he's the only method of salvation, Give one name given under heaven by, when, by which men may be saved, amen, we can be on the same team. So the disciples have to root out pride, not just in the church, but they've got to root out pride in the communities of faith that exist. That's why there can be kindness and gentleness and a magnanimous character toward other people in other places who are serving Christ. Now, Let's bring this to close. You seeing how pride, has, pride is a problem? Understatement of the day. You see how pride can create rifts in the community and in the way we relate to other people and other faith communities? So how are we going to apply this? How am I going to fight the natural tendency to evaluate myself against the metric of other people? You're going to leave on Monday and you're going to have that, I can't believe I have to be, go to work with that guy. I can't believe I have to listen to her because I am way better than her. They don't see things like I see things. I see things like Jesus sees things. They see things way different than Jesus. So how are we, how are we going to get this out of the community? So on one hand, I think... Isn't this a great sermon to talk about serving in kids' ministry? So if you need to teach this later in kids' ministry, Jessica, you're going to teach that? Go use this text and you'll make everybody feel guilty. It's awesome. 
it's awesome. This is the way you do it. But I don't think we can ignore the fact that Jesus values the little ones. Do we not? I mean, when I preached through the COVID season, I had, would have families in our church come up to me and go, our kids know you through the TV. We had kids who have now grown up listening to you on the screen. And what a horror it would be if I said to the little ones in our church, yeah, 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 I teach the Bible. I just don't talk to you. Can you imagine that? We have little boys in our church who run up, who run up to me and give me fist bumps. Can you imagine the, the poison it would create in the church if we didn't take time to value the little ones? What would it say about our understanding of who we are in Christ? So on one hand, I think the application here is for us to serve those who cannot contribute anything back to us. Are your eyes open to the people in our church that are easy to overlook? I'm not talking about out there somewhere, some people that you need to find out. I'm talking about here, in this place, people that you could easily go, I, have, I don't even know what their name is. They might not think like I think. I have no relationship. Are you willing to move toward and to receive them because of Jesus' name? Now, let me make just one brief point about this that I, I skipped over. When Jesus says, if you receive the little one, you receive me and you receive the one who sent me, do you know what he's saying? He's saying that your choice to humble yourself is actually, in Jesus' mind, an invitation to intimacy with Jesus. Do you see that? We think discipleship happens through teaching and growth and spiritual victories. Jesus says, if you want to get near to me, if you want to know who I am and what I'm like, spend time with people who don't benefit you. Spend time with the worthless. Spend time with the underprivileged. Spend time with the people in your faith community who are easy to overlook. And you will have a kind of intimacy with me that I promise to give you. So number one is open your arms. But number two, that really shows up in the second part of this story, is to give thanks. Do you give thanks for ministries happening in other places? One small way that we do that is by bringing up an Annalisa. By talking about ministry partners that, are, that we have overseas. By talking about local ministry partners. Because we believe, like, there are people going to hell who need people who love Jesus to tell them about Jesus. And it isn't just going to happen here. It's going to happen in all sorts of places around this city. It's going to happen in all sorts of places around this world. So one way that we try to do that is to give thanks for God, what God is doing in other people and in other places. Because we believe God's doing stuff in our community, but he's also doing stuff in other communities, right? Who are doing ministry according to his name. See, we know that our discipleship, our following of Christ has, has taken root in our life by our kindness and our open-hearted welcome of others. We know that something has changed in our understanding and our intimacy with Jesus when those of low value start to rise in our estimation because Jesus has given them a high and precious value in his sight. See, that's who he is. That's what he's like. He's magnanimous and gracious and in the incarnation, he draws near to sinners and sufferers to give them great worth and great value in his sight. And that's what the church is about. That's why we can't neglect this 
principle in discipleship. Amen? Father, we, we pause and confess the ways that we have a tendency to fall into the temptation of ranking ourselves with others. We can fall into the temptation of believing that our way is the only way. We can fall into the temptation of not recognizing that you do work in other places, other ways with people who know you by name. So Father, I pray that this lesson would take heart in this community. That there would be such kindness and gentleness and care for those who would come in and call this church their home that they might find uh, the affirmation of this community to say that you are of great worth in Jesus' sight and therefore you're of great worth in mine. That you would give us hearts of service, tenderness, and kindness toward the least of these among us. And Father, were those who come in here this morning may hear this message and go, I have felt unimportant. I have felt undervalued. I have felt invisible. I've felt like God's not doing anything. I've felt like I don't know what it means to follow Christ. I pray that they would hear in the word of Jesus this morning that they are of great, great and precious value in his sight. That they're loved by him. That he looks at them and and says that you are important to me. And Father, would our community reflect that value of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.